people. But first, the madness of ups and downs in the oil prices are felt by most of us at the gas pump. You know that. We're, we talk about this a lot. Many special interest groups and a lot of us are calling for tax relief in order to get the price of gas down. But not... Mark Lee, he wants to double down in a just-released opinion piece. Mark, who's a senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, says it's time to tax more. Mark joins me now. Hey, Mark. Hey, good morning. I'm also half Irish, so happy St. Patrick's <laughs> happy Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Here we go. Well, I'll, I would be easy on you, but I don't think I'm going to be. I'm not sure if our callers will be because we're going to take callers after this chat. But this this column is, you know, it's counterintuitive, I think, to what we're hearing right now with the related to gas prices. But tell me a bit about, lay down the logic of your, your column because it just came out this morning. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think you're mischaracterizing uh, okay. what I'm stating right there, uh, right off the top of the bat. Uh, but you know, certainly the recent surge in oil prices, uh, you know, driven by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, has caused a lot of pain at mm-hmm. the pumps. Um, I think we'd all agree on that one. But the flip side of that economic pain is the massive profits for the oil and gas industry. So even last year, before uh, Russia invaded the Ukraine, uh, when we were having an economy rebounding out of the, the COVID slowdown, mm-hmm. uh, we've seen record profits in, uh, in the oil patch. Uh, almost $8 billion profit from Canadian National Resources, Suncor up to like $4 billion. So now with the, even the surge in prices, you know, we're essentially seeing record profits from the industry. So what I'm saying is we should be putting in an, a windfall profits tax on the oil and gas sector, and we should be using that money to flow back to households to ease the pain that they're feeling at the pumps. I would do that differently than just cutting the, the fuel tax, as, mm-hmm. as you're recommending, uh, transferring money, particularly to folks with a low and medium incomes. And we've also used some of that money to support things like reductions in transit fares that make it easier for people to get around or other investments that get, get us off of fossil fuels. But the key point here is just recognizing that uh, while a lot of people are feeling pain at the pump right now, there are others who are profiting handsomely, and we should be taxing that as wartime profiteering as we always done in the past. They're talking about doing this in the United States. They're talking about doing this in the UK. Uh, there's no reason why we shouldn't do it too. The Obviously, the, the ultimate question, the question always will come up is, you know, the transparency of that process. We had, for example, the the um, uh, the tax, the carbon tax here in BC. It, it was transparent. It was you know uh, revenue neutral. NDP comes in, they change it. Now it goes back into general revenue. Taxes and new taxes always concern people because, first of all, you may ask for transparency at the t- at the top like you are, uh, but that doesn't always guarantee it will be for for, for the future. Uh, and also the issue of it going back to the consumer in the end anyway, so that the tax that the consumer Consumer pays that tax no matter what. The the companies, the private companies, will make their profits, and they will make the consumer pay that tax. Yeah, I mean that's not exactly how it works, right? Because we're talking about taxing the windfall profits that are going to the the oil and gas sector uh, overall. So you can't actually, you know, do what you're talking about. If you want to talk about transparency, Mm -hmm. we need a much greater transparency on oil and gas overall. It's kind of a black box. Uh, the BC Utilities Commission looked into this in 2019 when there were concerns about gas gouging, and uh, they did all kinds of inquiries. They interviewed the companies and all kinds of other experts, and guess what they found? Companies were gouging consumers to the tune of about half a billion dollars per year, and that was back in uh, you know 2018. 
2019. So the types of profits we're making today are even much, much greater. It's an oligopoly. There's really only four companies that are manufacturing the gas that, that we consume. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think there's a concern right now is that you actually have seen uh, crude oil prices fall, uh, and we're not seeing a real drop at the pumps yet, uh, commensurate with that. Uh, when uh, crude oil prices go up, almost instantaneously they go up at the mm-hmm. pumps. Uh, but when they both prices go down, we see a much slower uh, process of profit-taking by the industry. So if you think that's okay and that consumers deserve to be gouged like this, go ahead and defend that position. And I don't think it's a smart position to then undermine the ability of the public sector to pay for the roads and the bridges and all of the other infrastructure that drivers rely on. What about, though, the transparency of the government itself? So you've got tra- you're asking for transparency of the, of the private sector here in this situation, but often we are so confused about the taxation on, certainly on the, on the pump, uh, at the pump, how much tax, and there's a tax on the tax. Uh, should the tax, that, that transparency be at all levels, not only in the private sector for those oil and gas companies, but also the government? It's very transparent. I mean, we know what the carbon tax is. There's a fuel tax in the province, and then we have uh, a a regional uh, TransLink tax. All Mm -hmm. of those are are well known. There's a federal fuel tax, which is a fixed amount. The only thing that changes is that there is the GST that gets paid on that. So as Mm -hmm. the price of all those other things go up, the GST wiggles a little bit. But otherwise, the amount of tax we pay is fairly clear. Uh, in Metro Vancouver, it's about 55 cents per liter. There's been some misinformation on this station saying it's as high as like 73 cents a liter, but that's just incorrect. There's a lot of misinformation going on around what's happening in the industry. All of it tends to have a very industry-friendly spin. So you should be que- questioning where you're getting some of the, the sources on this. But we know <laughs> okay. what those taxes are. It's not that they're, you know, not saying those taxes are low, but they no, do actually pay for uh, important things. And the run-up in prices that is of concern has nothing to do with the increase in taxes. It has everything to do with increased prices from the industry. Well, what about the transparency, not of the tax and how we, okay, you say it's 55 cents, 73 cents, whatever, more about where the no, tax... whatever, what? 20 well, cents a okay. liter is huge. And if people are misinforming okay, your that... readers, that, that, that listeners, that it's 20 cents more than the actual tax, that's misinformation. And you guys need to do some fact-checking to back that up. I will look into that. But for the, I'm talking about transparency of where that money goes. I, whatever the money is, where does it, the transparency as it goes from the pump or wherever the tax is uh, to how you, you know, you describe the situation of, you know, oh yeah, it'll go to transit, it'll go to this, it'll go to that. I, I, ha- I have little trust in government doing what they say, especially as governments change and they change their policies and they change their direction. And then suddenly it, this tax, which they never cancel taxes, they always add more taxes, uh, that, 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 that tax goes into general revenue for their own pet projects. How do we guarantee in the future that if you add a new tax like this, which would be massive, uh, that it doesn't go to the wrong things that people don't actually want and they end up paying for. Well, I mean, I think you take the revenues from that tax and you, in part, flow that back to households through, um, you know, you could just transfer like every month or every quarter um, a check for an amount and you have to determine what the benchmark is. So in the United States, they're proposing that you look at the average price of oil between 2015 and 2019 compared to the current price. Mm-hmm. And the tax is paid on the differential between that. So you're, they're taking a period when the companies were making decent profits. Uh, and they're just saying that, you know, amounts above and beyond that should be taxed at a really high rate. Because when you think about it, there's really nothing that's changed in terms of the gas that we consume. 
the same uh, oil sands operations in Alberta. It's the same refineries that process it into gasoline and diesel. It's the same transmountain pipeline that ships it to Vancouver. It's the same network of service stations. And yet somehow a crisis around the world sparks the ability of these companies to jack up prices enormously at huge cost to British Columbians. Uh, and you're basically just pointing the finger at taxes. I mean, let's look at the gouging by the industry. That's the real issue here. Okay, let's. I just want to shift gears a little bit, and and uh, to use the automobile metaphor. <laughs> but um, what we've got going on right now in the Ukraine with Russia, uh, the stranglehold that Russia has on certainly most of Europe and a lot of the rest of the world with regards to the control of oil and gas. Um, here in Canada, there's an argument for ethical oil. We have a country here that produces a significant amount of oil, could potentially you know, provide enough oil and gas for most of the world, could shut out Russia completely. Doing something like you described would discourage uh, the growth of that industry in order for us to empower uh, the Western economies to get off Russian oil and off unethical oil, potentially. Uh, don't you think that's a bad thing? Uh, false dichotomy. Look, I mean... Did you, were you around in 2021 in BC? We had a heat dome. We had massive wildfires raging for months. We had an atmospheric river that flooded. Yeah, but if the, the world comes mainland. to an end surely, because of a nuclear war, it doesn't really matter, surely does you it? Were, surely you were there for that and recognized that climate change is upon yes, us. Of and we need to get off of fossil fuels. We don't need to switch from uh, one country's oil to another country's oil. We're already consuming Canadian oil. It's, it's, in fact, it's a public resource that we are consuming and paying extortionate But we're on the brink for. of a world war, and it's almost all a lot of it's related to the oil yeah. and gas industry. Don't you and think so it would be better not so to be in the middle of a potential world war uh, and then also deal with the environment at the same time? Couldn't it be better to potentially have control of those things so that we don't have Russia holding this over our heads and, and trying to control uh, the world's economy and, and, and invade other countries? Well, surely what you see in Europe right now is they've recognized it was a mistake to be so dependent on Russian oil and gas, and they're moving now as quickly as possible to get off of Russian mm -hmm. oil and gas. The idea that we should be increasing our production at a time when climate change tells us we need to rapidly eliminate fossil fuels from our diet, this is a really bad time to double down on, on fossil fuel projects. Even if you wanted to do that, it would take you know years, if not decades, to get the infrastructure in place to do that. It's really not a smart response to a short-term issue that, that, the, that the war is causing. If, you want to, if we're concerned about the prices that British Columbians are paying uh, at the pumps, you know, there's an answer. I'm calling it a windfall profits tax. We'll make sure that the companies are not making out like bandits uh, by overcharging British Columbians. All right, Mark, we got to go. I appreciate you finding time today. Where can people read your column? Uh, policynote.ca, you'll find it. All right. Um, Thanks, Mark. we got to go. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mark. Right. Effective April 1st, 2022, fully vaccinated travelers will no longer be required to complete a pre-entry test for travel to Canada. Fully vaccinated travelers may still, may still continue to undergo random testing upon entry to Canada, but they are no longer required to quarantine while awaiting their results. Unvaccinated and partially vaccinated travelers will continue to be tested with COVID-19 molecular tests on arrival and on day eight while they quarantine for 14 days. All travelers are also required to complete a RiveScan online or through the free mobile app before entry to Canada.
This is George Affigan for Mike Smith, and that was uh, Jean-Yves Duclos, the uh, Minister of Health, uh, talking about the new changes uh, to the COVID testing. And uh, I don't know about you, but I get kind of confused when I hear all these changes. I'm so my brain doesn't can take it all in. But anyways, what he said is effective April first. I'm gonna have, I have somebody here now who's gonna help me clarify all this and fill us in. Claire Newell, President of Travel Best Bets. Hey, travel. Hey, hey, travel. <laughs> Clay, Claire. Hi, George. Yeah, this is really, really welcome news, not only for travelers who are looking to go and go somewhere internationally, but also such good news for the travel and tourism recovery across Mm -hmm. the country. So this is um, uh, amazing because it's the additional cost and stress of having to find Mm -hmm. a test to be able to come home. It's been a huge barrier to the economic recovery of the travel industry. So this is really, really welcome news. So if you're, if you are, make it it simple for me here. (laughs) So, you know, uh, the one thing I've been getting, it's been interesting through all of this over the past, because we heard that this was coming down uh, yesterday is, well, do I need a test to go somewhere? Like, obviously, the federal government can't decide what another country right. needs. And so the U.S. still requires one if you were flying. So okay. uh, you, you don't have one to do one if you're going across a land border. But this is for anyone anywhere outside of Canada. Until this point, you've had to have a test. They dropped it from the expensive PCR test, mm-hmm. the one, you know, that's like $150 and it usually takes 24 to 48 hours to get the test results back. On February 28th, they changed that to a rapid antigen test, which okay. is the cheaper one. Uh, but now there won't be any test required. A couple of things just to keep in mind, though. Travel still will have a few of the things that pre-pandemic we weren't really used to. Airports and airlines still require you to wear masks. Mm -hmm. You're still going to have to use the ArriveCan app because um, what that does is you upload your vaccination status and it spits out a code, a really simple code. So when you're going through customs and get cut to come back into Canada, you can just show that and they know that you're vaccinated and you don't have to go through and show all the paperwork. Um, So it will make the lineups uh, faster. So that's, that's why they're doing that. That's for air travel only though, right? That's for air travel only. Uh, no, it's also for land border. Oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, that's for both. To show that I'm not negative, that I, that I have, I have, or that I haven't had COVID or I don't have COVID. Well, it's to show that you're fully vaccinated. Right. You don't have to upload <laughs> your test results anymore okay. after April the four, uh, April the 1st. So, um, Yeah, that's the big deal here. I had actually wished, George, that this had kind of timed with the beginning of spring break because a Mm -hmm. lot of families have chosen to go and they're coming back on the tail end of March and they will still need to go through this process and they'll still need to find a lab or a pharmacy or take those portable Mm self-administered tests. And the reason this has impacted travel so much is that people were so hesitant to make a booking knowing that they might have to do this pre-departure test because at destination, if you test positive, you're staying for 10 days because you're not allowed to come back to Canada until 10 days after a positive test result. So that's why it was, you know, so hard for people to kind of get over that hurdle and make a decision to travel. That's now eliminated. So 
That's because I know people, people that were like in, I think when friend, in Tahiti and they one tested positive, the other one didn't. And so they had yeah. to make that tough decision. One person went home, the other one stayed uh, because that's what they had kids, they had to get home and, and it, you know, created. And I've, I've traveled, I went down to the States in October uh, with the kids. Come, it's so stressful. It was so stressful. It was so, it's so <laughs> like, stressful. And I, I've traveled as well and I know that kind of finding it and and it's not just I always use the portable uh, self-administered ones mm-hmm. where I called into a telehealth I use the switch health ones I found them super convenient but even uh, knowing that I had to get the timing right to match my flight mm-hmm. and okay yeah. but what if my flight's delayed and how's that going to affect it and what if I test positive so that is is gone that pressure is off if you are fully vaccinated you're not going to have that anymore so for many people it's the it's that final stro- like kind of hurdle that is now eliminated and they're now choosing to travel it's also going to make things change with respect to airlines and you Mm -hmm. can expect that all of canada's major airlines are going to be ramping up their flight schedules and adding capacity in the coming weeks so they hadn't because so many places they uh, and they just and travelers just weren't wanting to go in in big numbers so it'll be great because can they that, can they ramp up? Do they have the staff to ramp up? Yeah, they do. In fact, oh, okay. um, WestJet plans to be at ninety six percent of its pre pandemic network. Air Canada aiming to be at ninety percent by peak summer season. Both wow. of those airlines and other airlines, smaller ones like Flair, Transat, Porter, mm-hmm. they're all ramping up as well um, because there is so much pent up consumer yeah. demand. The uh, just shifting gears, and we're going to take calls after the break. So if people okay. have questions with you, but I, for you, but I, I want to ask what's you know what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in Europe, also the inflation craziness that's going on. Uh, how is that you know impacting the travel industry for you? Yeah, it's tough. Um, the, the situation in the Ukraine has a lot of people in the travel industry that, especially airlines, but tour companies, cruises that mm-hmm. have. Russia as part of their itineraries. They are all changing those uh, as we speak. Some have already done it. Some are on a wait and see. Some have had hmm. suspended their, um, their stops into Russia, say through until summer and, and, the, and they're hoping that things will, will improve. Mm-hmm. Um, but for airlines, it's kind of a double whammy. If they're airlines that do go through Russian airspace, particularly the ones that are leaving from Europe, I know that, um, thin air crosses because of course, uh, through airspace. Finland has, yeah, they yeah. have to go through Russian airspace to do a lot of their routes to to Asia. They've had to cancel those. Well, we um, we're affected by that too. I mean, all the airlines the, when they announced the the air, you know, the, the the airspace thing, that actually impacts us more than it does Russia. I think in some ways because most of our airlines flew over Russia. That's right, and so it's more much more expensive. And you can mm-hmm. imagine with the fuel prices, right. That's really going to hamper travel rebound. Hmm. Um, we're starting to see, you know, it, on so many fronts, things improving and loosening of travel restrictions. But these surging fuel costs are just threatening the industry's recovery around the world. And particularly when it comes to air travel, having to reroute and take those longer paths to avoid Russian airspace, it just drives the cost yeah. up for airlines. And um, for a lot of consumers who were planning to go and do things like um uh, Scandinavia mm-hmm. cruise through the Baltics that maybe stopped in right. Russia. Those itineraries are changing. So there's a lot of things that are being affected at the moment. 
George Affleck in for Mike Smith today. Hope you're doing well. And we've got Claire Newell from Travel Best Bets to stand with us here to talk about the new changes uh, for COVID testing when you're coming into Canada. Claire, I just want to clarify. I'm kind of con- I'm still a bit confused about when you get on a plane. You can't be positive, tested. Po- I mean, how do you know you're not tested positive and you, you can't get on a plane or come into the country if you're testing positive, right? Well, this is something that we're going to have to really self-monitor because you will be able to get on a plane to go to certain destinations, as you have through a lot of the pandemic. I mean, to go to Mexico, you do not need to have a COVID test to go. And so now going to Mexico, you don't need one in either direction. So this is really important. And we know that this is um, circulating in our community, George. That's the reality of it. Everyone I know or someone through someone knows someone who's had it. And um, so as we get through the pandemic, I think that this is now the reality. Just make sure you're vaccinated. That's not changing. You still have to be fully vaccinated. But what we're doing now, Health Canada will be relying on vaccination status versus testing. So, and and people need to be responsible and test and get themselves tested. I know that when I've traveled, self-testing is a huge part of it. And if there's any symptoms or anything like that, always get the tests, right? Yeah, that's right. And that, so that's really key. And keeping in mind, you need to take responsibility. COVID's right. not leaving. Uh, it's not going anywhere. So this is something that when you're in destination, you're really going to want to make sure that you you are responsible for your yeah. your own healthy and, and for others. So wear a mask if you choose. You will have to still wear a mask on board an aircraft and through an airport. That's not changing. Yeah. You're still going to have to do arrive can testing. And the way that the government is going to be monitoring will be the random test that they're doing on arrival right um, but you won't need to isolate while you're waiting for results of that so that's how uh, moving forward we're going to be learning to live with this as it becomes endemic rather than pandemic and I think anybody uh, this has been the case all the time do your research before you do anything as far as traveling it's stressful make sure you know what the rules are where you're going when you're coming back and all that stuff uh, let's take some calls we got yeah, some calls and George- yeah go ahead go okay ahead, real quick go ahead go ahead Claire I was going to say that no matter where you're going, it's really worthwhile going to the website Sherpa Travel. You can do a Google search for that, Sherpa Travel. It's going to look like a booking engine, and you can put in whether you're vaccinated or not, where you're going, including connecting flights. And it's going to tell you what you need in order to go to a destination as well as come back. All right, taking your calls, 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898. Your calls for Claire. We've got Ross from Maple Ridge. Go ahead, Ross. Yes, a two-point question. Thank you. First, uh, got some flights coming up in a couple of weeks. It's sort of a round trip. It's going from here to Lahui on the island of Kauai, then down to San Diego to visit grandchildren, back into Canada. Do we need to have tests, rapid antigen tests for all those different flights? And for the arrive can, my wife has no digital footprint, none. So will paper trails hmm. be sufficient? Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Ross. Go ahead, Claire. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, so you do not need to uh, have the test coming back to Canada once you're done in San Diego. But when you're going to Lahui, if you're going on a nonstop flight from Canada to Lahui, you will still need to have an antigen test done within one calendar day. It's not a 24 hour window. So say you're going on a Friday at mm-hmm. 9 p.m. You can have it done any time of the day on the Thursday, but you will still need to test to go to Hawaii. You will need to fill out the Arrive Can 
the app if you have that ability. If you don't, they do have a website that you can go to and Canada Customs for those who know that that might not be possible for people. As long as you've got the documentation and proof of vaccine, then they will read those. It may just take longer when you're coming back across into Canada. All right. There you go, Ross. And uh, Hawaii has always been one of the most strictest places, I think, for traveling to for since the pandemic started. We've got Mike from Vancouver. Go ahead, Mike. Uh, just a quick question. So the land border, you don't need to uh, to get a test to, uh, to, to go with, uh, to the U.S.? Right. Either yeah. so, to the US. That's oh, right. So In either forth, direction yeah. as a... Okay. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so at the moment you can go into the US by uh by car or by land without the need to test and then on April the 1st you'll be able to drive back without one. So going to go pick up gas or cheese and all of that type of thing we used to do on a regular basis will be a whole lot easier it's as of April 1st. It's like normal. <laughs> it's like Almost, Almost, but only for fully vaccinated. Only for fully vaccinated. Fully vaccinated. Have your, have your proof. <laughs> all right, we got Jen. Thanks Mike. I got Jenny from Langley. Go ahead. Yeah, my question is, does fully vaccinated mean you're two shots, mm. or does it also mean you have to have your booster? Thanks, Jenny. That's always a good question. It, good question. Yeah, it means that that you have had at least two doses of a Health Canada-approved vaccine um, within 14 days of, of travel. All right. So thanks, Jenny. Good question. Barry from Nanaimo, your question for Claire. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, my wife just flew down to the States when she checked in. They, her ticket had her full name on it, first, middle, and last. Her passport has first, middle, and last, but her booking only had her first and last. They wouldn't let her fly. She had to buy another ticket to fly out. Wow, that's unusual. Wow, that is really unusual um, because typically the airlines only need to have your first and last name. and it, but if it's the name wasn't matching the name on the passport, that's really where they can be sticky on it. So I always advise people, and especially if you're going through a travel agent, they would ask you, you even to show your passport, and they will book it in that full hmm. legal name on your passport details. What should he do then in that yeah. situation? Should he go? If that's the rule, then he he may get like, his money back. Yeah, if that's the. If that's the rule, that's the rule that the airline has. And hmm. it's uh, unfortunate. Can I ask, did you do that booking by yourself Very. Uh, online? Or was it something that you had an agent do for you? Barry, which was it? Are you still there? Uh, uh, yes, ahead. I am. Uh, the ticket that she booked it herself online. But the ticket had the, yeah. the right name on it. Hmm. Not. It was just the booking that went through that had the... So I'm not sure... Yeah, it's interesting. And when, yeah. you, when your ticket usually has your, if you put your middle name, it kind of combines them together too, which is weird on your ticket, doesn't it? Usually, yeah, kind of- it is. But that it's it's still considered right. So right. this would be a situation I think where there um, needs to be a bit more background. Hmm. But if anyone out there is listening and and is trying to book something themselves full name yeah. has to match the name on your passport yep thanks barry i hope uh hope you figure that one out i would say check into that all right claire that's great i appreciate you coming here and clarifying things because you know it's, it is it, it's we've talked before i'm always maybe it's just me i don't know yeah, I no it's so, the same as everybody it's a lot it's been so many changes since the start of this um i'm just happy to say we're on the kind of the back yeah. end we're getting there we're getting covid's there. not going away but the travel restrictions easing is making things a lot easier for people who are looking to head outside of Canada on a well-deserved vacation. Thanks, Claire. Thanks. 
Nice, Tim. A little uh, pocket, pick a pocket or two from Oliver, from Oliver. And that's relevant because we've been hearing, first of all, a lot about the broken windows in Vancouver and all these attacks and stuff that's been not, not nice. But in Richmond, there's something weird going on and unusual. Two men have actually come forward saying their watches were stolen right off their wrist without them knowing it. They were Rolexes, Rolexes so, you know, that's a very expensive watch. But, you know, they managed to steal these things right off their uh, wrists, you know, akin to what we've seen. If you've ever seen the play or movie Oliver, this is what they these kids they train to be pickpockets but this isn't Oliver this is number three road in Richmond uh, the stories are quite amazing this one guy, gentleman who uh, spoke to the Richmond News talked about you know he was giving these people direction in their car and he was just pointing and somehow they slipped it off his wrist and he didn't even notice it was and this is is this a is this a, a problem in Richmond. Are we going to see more of this? Is this a concern? Barb, Ar- Bob Arno is a criminologist and a master pickpocket himself, and he joins me now. Hey, Bob. Hello there, and good morning. Good morning. Where, so, <laughs> where would you like me to uh, to jump in <laughs> with this very strange story? Yes, First well, all, you, you, I, yeah, I, you're I, a pickpocket. <laughs> Tell me how. Tell me how. No. Well, 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 um, we're not going to spend a lot of minutes about my background other than that as a teenager and uh, early in my 20s, I was a very good stage pickpocket. And I could walk in the streets of Paris or Rome and pickpockets, the real guys, would high-five me because of my presence on television. But from that, I became fascinated to uh, follow them, to track them, to get into the headspace. And so I have spent uh, 35 years basically roaming the world, tracking these people, working in law enforcement. Not so much about apprehending them as to finding out their techniques and then training unique police forces in mm. Paris or in Rome or Las Vegas, wherever, wherever they happen to operate, uh, I am there and train the police. So uh, what you are seeing here in Vancouver is not uh, particularly unique other than that it, uh, you will only see them work for a short while and then they go on to another city. Oh. It is, when you break it down, when you look at exactly what they did, it's not particularly sophisticated or peculiar, hmm. but we should start out by telling you they targeted the victim, meaning they tracked them earlier, they looked at behavior, they saw when they purchased something that they reached out with their wrist and they could actually see that it was a valuable Rolex. I should say that people over 50 years old if they wear a Rolex, it's very likely that it's the real McCoy, something mm-hmm. they bought some years ago. If you see someone who is, shall we say, 50 or younger, it's more likely it's a copy. <laughs> and, it, and it's worth very little. And so the thief isn't going to really make much money from that. On the other hand, uh, as I go and try and explain this for you, I should also mention that there is another side that is very sophisticated, and it's in the high club uh, seen in Paris or in Rome or yeah. various places Barcelona, in Europe. Where, yeah. Well, actually, where wealthy sports stars, oh. music stars, oh, okay. love, to we- love to wear a $60,000 watch. They're big and clunky, but they tell a story. Hmm. And so the thieves are very good at ripping those off. That is not the story you had in Vancouver. There, you, they were targeted, these people, they watched how they walked, how they behaved, and then they trapped them with a sophisticated but, gimmick. And the gimmick okay. is starting to talk and attempting to sell them something, which in this case is a bracelet, something where they could reach for the left wrist 
and try and place this thing they wanted to sell. So they have physical contact, which for the first 20 seconds to the victim appears to be real. Of course, the victim is saying, I'm not interested in buying that. They want to jerk away their hands yeah. and pull away yeah. from this person. But they are aggressive. They are firm. They're holding on. And so as you have that little tug of war that could last for 10, 15 seconds, the victim doesn't feel when the hand of the thief is opening the buckle and the strap and then pulls it off and maybe with the other hand covers with their scarf or some cloth or this little bracelet. So that's, that's the principle. I can barely get a watch off myself, let alone taking it off somebody else. I mean, that, the, <laughs> the, the skill set of this is, I mean, it's, it's the 10 to 15 seconds seems like a lifetime, though. I mean, I would have thought it would be like two seconds they can do it or something. Well, um, the start, when I say 10 seconds, I am saying the beginning, you're not going to instantly come up to a person and go boom, boom, and the watch is off. That's okay. not how it happens. The victim only remembers that someone approached, brushed into them, spoke to them, put their hands over the wrist. They don't really time. They don't understand the precise moment by which it was sliding over the hand. Hmm. What we have to remember here is that the perps, the pickpockets, they have a background of having done this probably all their life in variations. And since COVID happened, they cannot necessarily be out and stealing credit cards and wallets and phones right. as, as easy. And so the ones that had this type of style, this technique mm -hmm. ingrained, which they learned when they were early, uh, you're not going to have, um, uh, shall we say, a kid who is 22 years old uh, and is born in, in uh, Ottawa or in Vancouver deciding to become a pickpocket. So it's going to be... So there's not a, there's not a college of pickpocketing that uh, kids can go to these days? I mean, how do you even go? <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> well, there are... There, you know, oh, okay. You should, you should say Tuition's that. quite high, I imagine. <clears throat> there, there, there are rumors that there are schools in Colombia, and I have looked for that huh. for maybe 40, 50 years, actually, going into the mountains there. Of, uh, and, and looking for them. And that's not quite true, but it's a good story. However, in Naples, in uh, Napoli, in Italy, uh, because of the poverty after the Second World War and then in the 50s, there was very high unemployment in the south of Italy. So Naples had a very unique background where kids started to do this type of thing. But hmm. they are using a very more brute and a different style the one we saw um, that you are describing, yep. these two people, that is a very different one, and they're not going to be from Naples. They're probably local or at least Canadian. And no, 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 no. They're not going to be locals at all. Oh. No, they're, they are definitely going to be traveling. They are going to concentrate on what we call crime against the elderly. And I belong to something called NABI. National Association of Banco Investigators. And we are a network of about two, 300 investigators who specialize in tracking just these type of people. Mm -hmm. And they will be maybe 10, 12 days, and then they move on. Okay. Because once, once the police understand the style and the cameras at the network, and you start tracking, you look at the, 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 the numbers on the cars that they're driving, you start finding a pattern, right, so there's, and then, okay. then you're able to arrest them. By the way, if you're interested in 
seeing a little more about this or tracking it, we have a special, we have a website especially okay, to teach people. It's called thiefhunters.com. Thiefhunters.com. Yeah, we go into deep detail okay. on what, uh, what you should do. Uh, yes, and, I was going to ask you that real quick. So we only have about 30 seconds. What should people do? What should, real quick, what should people do to avoid uh, these situations? They should quick. be very careful with the, when a new person comes up and talks to you and starts uh, uh, asking you anything. Let your antennas go straight up and you're in a new environment and then come up. Have three credit cards when you travel. Lock one in your safety. If you lose your wallet, you still have the third one. And maybe have all your, your um, code for your internet in a flash drive uh, that is on the side. If you uh, break into it, when you travel, your phone, you lose it, you have it somewhere to get. All right, Bob. I appreciate you joining me today and uh, filling this on this. It's really helpful. Welcome back. George Affleck in for Mike Smith. And we're into our last hour of the show here. And uh, it's still raining outside, looking out the window. still raining. It's going to be a rough couple of days, I think. And, uh, you know, well... That's the way it goes. Spring is coming, though. Come on. Spring is coming. All right. Seven adults and two children have created a, an affordable housing in an east side Vancouver neighborhood, and they own it. They own this place. But here's the hitch. The home is, is actually, on paper, a single-family dwelling. Alicia Perez is one of the owners, and she joins me now to tell me exactly how this actually happened. Hello, Alicia. Hi. Thanks for joining me. So tell me, there's three, family, how many, there's three families living in this house? Yeah, three families. And how did this happen? Like, this is the ultimate question of affordability in our city. How do we do it? How do we get there? You've figured out a solution. Tell me what that solution is. Tell us the magic solution. Um, I, I don't know that it's a magic solution, okay. but we, um, two of us are younger couples. So mm-hmm. we're in our early 30s. We have young families. Um, and the other couple is in their 50s with um, children who've moved out of the home. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, the two of us younger couples had had been looking at ideas about how we could stay in the city but grow our families and have a bit more space. And so we had started by looking at purchasing a house together and realizing that even a house together for the two of us was out of reach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then we um, had looked at options of, um, we were originally going to try to buy half of a duplex and then connect with another family. Um, but when we looked at the options for duplexes, um, they weren't, um, really built well or um, didn't maximize the space mm-hmm. um, and so didn't meet our needs. And so then this third couple, they offered their resources um, to um, like the equity in their home plus the equity in our own homes to build something that would suit all of our needs. Um, and so, yeah. So, so, so we, you built it from scratch or you bought a house that you renovated? It, it's like substantially renovated. Okay. It, it, um, we took it back to the bones of the house. Um, so, um, yeah, it was considered a renovation so that we had less of a wait time for permits with the city, but um, we gutted the entire inside um, to make it suitable for all of our families. Now, this is kind of like co-housing, but without the yeah. without the nightmare that the city seems to put in for other co-housing projects when they build individual units. You're kind of like yeah. roommates, um, we, so you we don't have to go it through. It's like accessible co-housing. Accessible <laughs> um, co-housing. Yeah. I love it. I love yeah. it. So you, but you have to. So you're not. You're just basically roommates. That's how it's looked at. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's no other, from a city point of view, from the bureaucracy that the city loves to pile on on anybody, you simply mm-hmm. were doing some renovations and that's all the city needed to know. Yes. And we all own it together. So we're all on the title. So um, 
How does that yeah, work? So is that a challenge, especially when it comes to banking with you know three yeah. different so owners? Tell me about that. That's a challenge that, that yeah. banks generally only want as many as four people on the title because it looks to them like some kind of business arrangement. But because we live in the home, this is our only home. None of us own other properties. Mm. Um, we kind of had to shop around until we found a bank that um, uh, yeah was supportive of this. Um, and Van City was the only one who would take this on at the time. Why would they be worried about it being a business arrangement? I mean, how how is that a what is what is that problem? I don't get it. I'm not sure. I think it's just unfamiliar to them that there would be <laughs> six people who owned a home who yes. lived in that home together. So yeah. then they just have different frameworks for people that number of people on a title, and it's just a bit more complicated. I think even with with lawyers, and when we went to do the purchase agreement, I think it was just a bit more complicated because it's just not something that they familiar like they routinely deal with. Right. Even the ownership, like. If my husband were to die, how I yeah. assume part of that versus if another couple were to die, how I assume part of it, that's like a different relationship and a different ownership. So I think that's part of why there's a bit more complication legally. But generally speaking, it's just a single family home. We all own it. We all um, are we are all responsible for it, too. So technically, if the other five owners decided to move out of the country and abandon me, I would be responsible for the entirety of the debt, um, which but, I think makes some people nervous. But that's an unlikely scenario. Well, yeah, I was going to ask, how are things going? I mean, you've been in there. How long you've been all together there? Yeah, almost a year. We've so. been actually in the house. We bought the house in 2018, but took quite a bit of time to go through the renovation process with the city. Um, and then COVID happened as well. But we've been here for almost a year. We're all very happy with the arrangement. Obviously, um, there's like things that you have to learn to do well um, living together. But um, for the most part, it's just like living with, I don't know, the family that you grew up in. You have to negotiate how to right. use the space well um, with different needs. And so um, it's generally like very positive. Yeah, I, there was four kids in my family growing up and, and my parents, and we only had one bathroom. So, you know, mm-hmm. that's the way it used to work. So if uh, if things do get ugly, though, is there a, how do you, do you just have to buy the person out? And then, or how would that work? Have you even talked about that? Or are you just kind of, I don't want to talk about that. Or you, you must have we some. Have like a, we have a, like a loose co-ownership agreement. Um, okay. more, it's more like values-based because ultimately we talk to a lawyer and there's nothing that we can really do to force any of us right. to stay. And, and no one would really want to stay in a hostile environment anyway. <laughs> no. And so it's, it's, not really binding, but we do have an agreement that will stay in the house a minimum of five years, um, just because otherwise it's not financially beneficial um, to have done this much work. Um, but beyond that, um, we, you know, we have um, agreed that we would like seek some kind of mediation from a mm-hmm. third party if something was really that difficult. But we've kind of done so much work up front about how we want to live in this space um, and how we want to share the costs of that and how like our lifestyles will overlap and all that up front so that it's been like less of adjustment moving in together. Honestly, for most part, it's made everybody like more comfortable because like most young families are really exhausted and don't have a lot of time. And, and we get to share, we share housekeeping responsibilities. We share cooking responsibilities. Okay. We share childcare responsibilities. So it's really mostly beneficial. Yeah, That's cool. The, the mm-hmm. question of affordability, you're a 50% owner. I mean, you're as a, as a now a homeowner of a house, with, mm-hmm. even though you're with two other people, two other groups, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. how affordable is it for you? What is the cost for you? What are you, what are you, what's your portion and, and, you know, so my doing? husband and I, we own 25% of the house. Okay. The couple that's a bit older, they actually own 50%, which is what made it more accessible to the younger couples. Right. Um, but uh, we currently, it's 
gone over budget because of COVID and because we actually had a fire. But absent those hiccups, our mortgage is fairly similar to what it would have been when we wow. owned our condo. So we, ha- we, um, we have about a $400,000 mortgage. That's great. I mean, to yeah. live in a house uh, yeah. that you own that, of course, goes up in value, especially in Vancouver, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, Alicia, thanks very much for joining me today. George Affleck in for Mike Smith today. And before the break, we were talking to uh, a unique situation where a homeowner, Alicia, uh, has found uh, two other people, two other families, Alicia Perez and her two other families found a way to buy a house together and live together in Vancouver because they found, of course, as we all know, that Vancouver is so unaffordable to buy buy a house. If you're a young person to buying a house in the city, impossible. Why? Can't we get this affordability issue under control in Vancouver and, and anywhere in this province, for that matter? Why is it so unaffordable here? In his just-released study, Learning from Montreal, an Affordable and Inclusive City, Victoria Transport Policy Institute's Todd Lippman says uh, Montreal's getting it right. Let's find out how. Todd, how are you doing? You're joining me now. Yes, bonjour. Bonjour. Tell me, what is going on? I've been to Montreal, I understand, but I, I, I would have assumed Montreal would be like anywhere else in Canada, like the chaos, the unaffordability, it's all rampant, it's out of control. Why is it different? What's happening? What's going on there? Right. On the contrary, um, Montreal is unique in North America. Uh, if you visited there, you know it has a European vibe. You know, you walk around the neighborhoods and um, many of the houses are townhouses or Mm -hmm. low-rise apartments. They've been building those types of houses so long and allowed so much of that type of construction that you have this uh, wonderful supply of affordable, basic housing. So putting this into perspective, Mm -hmm. in Vancouver... About 80% of the residential land is zoned to only allow low density. So it, it, right. it only allows single-family housing. And only 20% of the land base allows townhouses and apartments and you know, other lower-cost construction housing. In Montreal, uh, 56% of the land base allows multifamily housing. And so it's far easier to build that type of basic affordable housing that everybody needs. Montreal is also more affordable because that housing, a lot of that housing, a lot of the basic affordable housing is being built in walkable urban neighborhoods. So Mm -hmm. you can live easily in Montreal without owning a car and the cost of the car. Uh, that, and that helps certainly on affordability. I mean, in Montreal, it's quite unique for sure. You look, a lot of my friends that I know there live in, in sometimes they're duplexes, but they're three-floor duplexes, and each floor has a different f- unit in it. And it's, so it's like a three-story you know, building with three different families in it, each of them owned, so, but it's not strata. It's very unusual, and everybody seems to live in those. But these were built, some of them were built a long time ago. And I think you look at Vancouver and you talk about this 80%, and of course, you're not including basement suites and there's a laneway houses that were growing. We're getting more density in single-family lots in Vancouver. But there's this pushback of that kind of density that you see in Montreal, where it's, you know, it's corner to corner, uh, you know, wall, you know, using up every piece of the property except maybe, maybe the backyard. Um, would that fly here? I mean, I don't, I don't see that flying here. Well, uh if we want to solve unaffordability problems, 
we need to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the problem is actually a great problem to have. A lot of people want to live in Montreal, uh, in, in Vancouver, mm-hmm. and Vancouver is is a successful city. There's lots of business going on. There's it's attractive for visitors. Um, if we fail to build housing to meet those needs, so if we fail to allow uh, more housing to be built in uh, in our residential neighborhoods, uh, then the then the limited supply of housing is going to be very expensive. Mm-hmm. Montreal demonstrates that if we allow the basic types of housing, like you described, the three story, uh, three unit. Uh, townhouses, mm-hmm. um, cities become much more affordable and much more walkable. And it's it's possible, I don't know about your friend's experience, but what we find is it becomes a very attractive place for artists, creative types, uh, for students, uh, for, for retirees. The types of people that are being priced out of Vancouver can afford to live in a city like Montreal because of that basic affordable housing. And how affordable, what's the pr- rough price difference that you're seeing? Uh, is it not just about cost, is it, you know, it's a mixture of cost of living as well as the actual home price, or is it a mixture, or is it actual home prices cheaper? Well, the housing is much cheaper, consistently uh, 20 to 40% cheaper for the same mm. type of house. In Montreal, so if if you look at my report, it actually has the um, the the as a as sort of a reference. It mm-hmm. uses uh, the the results of of one of these companies that posts uh, rental prices. It's called PadMapper, and if you go to PadMapper, you'll see uh, the most recent survey showed that Vancouver uh, uh, for one uh, bedroom apartments so of Vancouver. Uh, yep. uh, rents average just under two thousand dollars a mm-hmm. month. If you're lucky, in Montreal, if you can find one, yeah, yeah. In, exactly. If you can even find one, in Montreal, they average under fourteen hundred dollars a month. So, a, more than a six hundred dollar per month savings in Montreal. And there's a lot of that housing. Those are the average. Mm-hmm. In Montreal, you can still find apartments. Uh, for rent that are available for under $1,000 a month. But do you think it's because some of it also, Vancouver is so desirable and we've seen the kind of growth curve that Montreal has not seen. In fact, if you look at, you know, since the 70s, the population's been somewhat stagnant. Uh, and so they've have benefited from that in a way that Vancouver with its, you know, uh, you know 5%, you know, or 20 to 30,000 new people moving into the region every, you know, year, we can't just keep up. Right. There's a, yeah, there's a little bit of truth in that, that Montreal has a, an annual growth rate a little under 1%, and Vancouver's annual growth rate is a little over 1%. Mm-hmm. But, but the basic dynamics don't, don't, don't change. The question is if, if you know, like you say, 5,000 or 10,000 people want to move to uh, the Vancouver region every year, are we building enough housing right. in the basic, not, it's not total housing. It's the housing in the basic market. That right, is just population growth and there's units. And that's, uh, people right. often get those two confused. Well, and that it's not only building expensive housing. Right. So the zoning codes, the zoning 
uh, in Vancouver favors the expensive type of housing. Mm -hmm. It favors single-family housing, which is always going to be more expensive than a townhouse or an apartment or a condo because it requires that much more land. So in in Vancouver, there you know when you the the, the housing that's being added yep. tends to be more expensive because of these restrictions, the mm. city's restrictions on the infill. And it isn't, of course, just the city of Vancouver itself. It's all the it's, a, it's all the outlying areas like Burnaby. Some, and, some are and better Beach. than others for sure. But yeah, there's definitely sure. bottlenecks here and there. All right, Todd, I got to go, but I appreciate uh, you finding time today to talk about this report. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks. Little Bob Seeger talking about the old good old days of George Affleck in for Mike Smith and joining me is my good old friend mm-hmm. Eric Chapman to talk about the old is a new is the old what the old is the is new old, again is, is it new? new again is it old does that mean you're new again old or is that I, what that means? I'm, just, I'm just getting old. <laughs> okay, first of all, thank you for getting my name right because earlier in the show you said this. Hey, travel. When referring to Claire <laughs> Newell and you called her travel and I just wanted you to know my name is Eric. George, not travel, okay? <laughs> you know, it's been a quite a show, and uh, you've been paying attention. We've had a few hic- hiccups here and there, so uh, yeah. we'll just throw that in the pile of hiccups. <laughs> yeah, and just a reminder to everyone, too. Top of the morning to you, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that was, but I just wanted to remind everyone. It's St. Patty's Day, so. Top of the morning <laughs> to you. That's right. That's I apologize bad. to all Irish people in the world for that. Well, Although you I know, am part I, Irish, so, you know. Yeah, yeah, and see, and here I, am, I have to go to this really quick before to get, why on St. Paddy's Day does everybody have to say <laughs> that they're 0.008% Irish? I don't understand it. Like on the 4th of July, are you like, oh, I'm 0.4% American? No, but on Irish, on this day, everybody- On Irish day? Irish. <laughs> on Irish day. <laughs> nice. Get that, Tim. Put Tom that in the, the tank. Of yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> You know why, though? It's because people want to start drinking at 9 a.m. to, to, to celebrate uh, St. Patrick's yeah. Day. That's why everybody has yeah. a bit of Irish in them on yeah. St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> so, I don't know if that's something we should – should we be celebrating that, though, George? Like, this is – I'll see you, you 20 know what minutes I mean? at the like, bar you know, <laughs> yeah, okay. on Granville Street. <laughs> Okay, that's right. Okay, but yes, old to the new yes, and the new to the old. You, uh, you know what I found interesting? Because I brought this up the other day because I mm-hmm. saw an article in Medium, it was, about this gentleman who lives in the States, and he takes um, something called a tintype photograph where it's a it's a certain it's like a if you picture those old yeah, cameras that look I like an accordion yeah yeah you got one of those i've got one of the photos of those tin photos like they're like oh do you metal, have a tin like, type oh no yeah. cool yeah mm-hmm. yeah dad, it's great, really great interesting yeah yeah and and it's this whole old process but just got me thinking about you know how this often so often happens even with transit i did a series on transit and we talked about um with rob true who's a transit historian about how the, the transit line out to Chilliwack used to be the longest train um, service line in North America, but they took it away, <laughs> and now we want to bring it back yes. again. It's like this is always happening, you know? And so yeah. I found it, and you even brought up that your do- um, your ch- one of your children yes. does a collects old photos. Yeah, yeah she what, goes what into, used to, she just finds old, you know, actual photos of pe- other father. Uh, maybe she doesn't like our family, I don't know. She finds other families' <laughs> photos that she thinks are cool looking and buys them and has a little yeah. scrapbook of these photos. I'm like, do you hate, do you hate our family are our photos so terrible you don't want them in your collection well maybe you should get more family tintype photos maybe she would like those yes i'm not that old <laughs> that would be fun though well no you couldn't get them done okay so I, okay. I i saw this this article in medium from this guy but there is a local guy and his name is ian and he talks um he runs something called the tintype trike where he actually built um a, a trike that is this little photo booth and he takes tintype 
um, photographs. So I just called okay. him up just to talk a little more, just to try. Because again, I collect records, George. I have a reel to reel. I have old things, but I don't understand mm -hmm. why I like them. So I find it whole fascinating. So I talked to Ian at Tin Type Trike, okay. and um, he he says it's when you, when you go old with things, it just it creates that experience. It's not it's not how long it takes the image to expose yeah. that creates a sense of intimacy that this person's describing. Rather, it's the collaborative effort that it takes to shoot the photograph. In no way is it just going to be you sitting there doing absolutely nothing in order for me to shoot the photograph. We both need to work together, just orchestrating all the small details ever so perfectly, as well as ensuring that you're not going to move in between the time I'm able to focus the camera and when I'm actually able to expose the image onto the plate. Because there is a delay where I have to actually physically place the metal sheet into the back of the camera before I shoot it. So I guess that kind of answers my question, my next question, well, what it was going to be. Because it's like, as I mentioned, I like collecting old things and doing things in an old way. Like, I like handmade things. I do it myself. But I never can figure out why. So what, what, beyond, do you think there's something beyond that interaction? Or is it just that interaction that really draws us into these type of things? Especially, because like, you can turn on your iPhone and take a picture. And I'm sure there's a filter that you could put on would be the same thing. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I mean, you can, uh, you can, you can, uh, you can, you can talk to some, uh, some other clients who have tried to go that direction and see how it pans out for them. But, uh, yeah, yeah. no, it, it's irreplicatable. Um, there is absolutely no way that you can run a filter over an image and, um, to a truly well-trained eye fool someone to think it's a tintype. It is impossible. Tintypes are incredibly unique in the way that they optically render, the way that images are translated through glass onto a direct capture of the size of 4 by 5 inches or 8 by 10 inches. You will never be able to accomplish what we accomplish with these vintage cameras on an iPhone whose sensor is, you know, a, sense, a centimeter large at best. You're trying to ruin so that the guy's life, Eric, by saying, oh, I just do it, I got an app for that. <laughs> that's why I said it, right? Man. But if you if you think about it, they're the original NFTs, this original piece of thing, sure. right? So again, we're going old to new and new this this weird metaverse that we've created. And and to your point that you brought up, you know, you know, you can get these camera with these ISO, and mm -hmm. I don't know the this. I'm trying to sound smart. I don't know the <laughs> slang at all. That was a very that was a week here. I'm just going to cover my butt with this. Tough of the morning to you. <laughs> so we, you know, we have all this technology for things, but as Ian from Tintype Trike explains, mm -hmm. actually older things can actually have a better quality. Tintype is essentially a seamless, grainless endless amount of detail most cameras are limited by what's described as their iso which is their light sensitivity the higher your iso the easier it is to shoot a photograph quickly with less light the lower the iso the longer it takes a photograph to get made but the more detail will be inherent in the photograph most modern cameras will take you down to an iso range of about 100 tintype registers at an iso range of 0.5 or less so when I shoot a tintype, which is an 8x10 contact print, I am capturing on a plane that is 8x10 inches large, and I am capturing every single square inch of that plane at about 50 ISO. In a modern sense, on some of the most expensive cameras you can buy, $80,000 cameras, they are going to have what's called a medium format sensor, which is going to be somewhere around, say, 3 inches by 
four inches at largest, at absolute largest. So in order to capture something with as much detail as we do with direct contact print on tintype, it takes an unfathomable amount of information in a modern age. Really interesting. You know, Eric, my, the one yeah. I mentioned, I have this, this photo of my, I think it's my great-grandfather, <clears throat> and it's probably from the okay. late 1800s, but it's fading. Yeah. And I, I, I have to ask this guy, is there a way to bring it back? Because it's starting to disappear because it's yeah. over 100, 130 years old. Uh, it's on a piece of wood, and then it's on top of there, and it's, it's my, it's a, I think it's from when he was in the army or something in Russia. I don't know where oh. he was. It's really cool, but it's def- disappearing. I keep it in yeah. dark, but it is disappearing. So it's really cool, though. Very yeah, no, that's interesting. I have a similar photo. Fo- my mom has a similar photo of her grandparents of the band back in uh, Croatia or Germany or wherever our f- family was originally from. And same thing. It's starting to fade from the sun, but you can get, um, you can take it to a, like a professional framing. Sh- just some advice for you here, really, too. What's up we do here on CKNW? <laughs> Top of the morning to you, um, you can You can take it to a specialty framing place, and they can put that protective glass over it that'll like slow the fade down a bit. Oh, so yeah, okay. If you need to, yeah, yeah. But again, too, but to the old, to the new, I was even... um. Thinking about this uh, subject too, I was I bought a new phone, cell phone recently, and I almost bought a flip phone or an old Nokia, oh, George, man. because I just am sick and tired. Are of you the a drug size. dealer? Is a burner phone? Yeah. What, what, yeah. what are you doing? <laughs> no, why? I'm, just, I'm sick and tired of how big the phones are, and I wanted something smaller. So I was thinking maybe I'll go to an old flip phone or like a a Nokia or something like right. that, but then I ended up gotten a, the the new iPhone because it's smaller. But I, yeah, like, I, just, I remember that the pre the pre big the pre fancy phones we have now that there was always a competition yeah. with my friends of who had the smallest phone that That's could slip right. into your pocket. Kids, kids yeah. these days they don't know what the phones how small they were. They, like literally, I had a phone that was smaller than my wallet, and it you know I had to hold it to my ear yeah. like a you know it fit the the whole thing could have gone in my ear hole. It was so small. That's they do that on Zoolander when he has that really tiny cell phone. Yeah, remember right. that? Yes, really exactly like that. Thing. It could fit in your watch pocket. Yeah, that's totally true. <laughs> wow, interesting. I don't know. Yeah, 